Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Dose Nation. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Jake Kettle, and uh, here with me, as always, is uh, co-host, author of Psychedelic Information Theory, and founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. James, how are you today? I'm doing fine today. It's uh, There's a huge windstorm in Seattle, so... Things are gusting around, and there are police cars and fire engines zooming up and down the street, and there's all sorts of chaos and craziness here in Seattle, but uh, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, well that's, well, that's good. That's good to hear. <laughs> but, yeah, um, it's interesting. It happens usually once a year in Seattle. We get a big windstorm like this, so well, all the leaves are getting blown off the trees today. Hey, well, that means more work tomorrow, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> at least uh, everybody's safe and all right. We're able to uh, to do the show today, so it is a little windy in Seattle then. That's it. Yep. Is that, isn't, that some, isn't that some kind of... Uh, what what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, like coined phrase, windy in Seattle, or is it there is that windy in some other city? Chicago is Chica- the windy okay, city. Chicago. Oh, the windy city. Yeah, I think okay. in Seattle you're supposed to be sleepless. Oh, okay. Well, I thought I thought New York was sleepless, the city that never sleeps. Oh, well, there's the movie Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, right, 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 with right. Tom Hanks. I, and, I don't. Uh, I don't think I've seen that. <laughs> but anyway, <it's, laughs> is it any good? Uh, it's worth seeing if you like Seattle or, you know, schmaltzy 80s romances. <laughs> well, moving past that, um, I want to get right into t- to, uh, today's guest, and I'm sure you do too, uh, James, because th- this is going to be a really interesting show. I'm really uh, excited for it. So uh, let's, introduce, uh, uh, let's introduce today's guest. Robert W. Sullivan IV is a philosopher, a historian, an antiquarian, a jurist, a theologian, a writer, and a lawyer. The only child of antique dealers, he was born on October 30th, 1971 in Baltimore, Maryland. He graduated high school from the Friends of Baltimore, which is the oldest private school in Baltimore, founded in 1784 in June of 1990. He attended Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania, becoming a brother of uh, Lambda Ch- Psi Alpha. Sorry, I'm not so good with the um, fraternity names. Um, he earned his B.A. in history in 1995. Mr. Sullivan spent his entire junior year of college, which was uh, 1992 to 1993, abroad at St. Catherine's College in Oxford University, England, studying European history and philosophy. While in Oxford, Mr. Sullivan was a member of the Oxford Union, the Oxford University Conservative Association, and the Oxford Law Society. Upon returning to the United States in June of 1993, He took a year off from Gettysburg College to serve as office director of the Washington International Studies Council located on Capitol Hill. Prior to attending law school in the United States, he spent time, uh, he spent the uh, Michael Must term 1995 at at Trinity College, Oxford University, studying jurisprudence and international law. From 1997 to 2000, he attended uh, Widener University. School of Law, Delaware campus, from uh, where he received his Juris Doctorate. Admitted to the State Bar of Maryland in 2000, as well as the District of Columbia in 2002, Mr. Sullivan spent uh, 2001 to 2008 working at various law firms in the Baltimore area, practicing primarily in the area of insurance defense. Mr. Sullivan is a Freemason, having joined Amicable St. John's Lodge No. 25, Baltimore, Maryland, in 1997. He, he, he became a, sec- a 32nd-degree Scottish Rite Mason in, in 1999, Valley of Baltimore, Orient of Maryland. The Royal Ark of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism, is his first published work and is the result of 20 years of research. A lifelong Mar- uh, Marylander, he resides in Baltimore. Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the introduction, and I really appreciate being on Toast Nation. Um, it's wonderful to be here, uh, James and uh, Jake, and uh, I think I agree with you. I think this is going to be a very interesting uh, program tonight. Yeah, so let me just start off um, just talking a little bit about your studies. You, you went to Oxford University uh, from Gettysburg. What, what just, just out of curiosity, what, what compelled you to, to, to go to Oxford? What, what compelled you to go and study European, Western European history and philosophy? Well, I was a, I was a history major at Gettysburg, and um, when I was entering my junior um, my junior year, this would have been what you said ninety two ninety three, um, an opportunity presented itself um, to study abroad at Oxford University, and I thought, how great would this be? 
um, and you know it was it was to become a full associate member of uh, St. Catherine's College. So I, um, uh, you know, the the opportunity presented itself. I was accepted for the entire year. Um, in in American schools, in American colleges, um, the, the the college year is usually broken in half um, between two semesters. You know, a fall. You know, and then you know, fall semester, then the you know, quote unquote, winter, spring semester. It's two semesters. In in Oxford, it's three. Um, you have the fall semester, you have a winter semester, and you have a spring semester. Um, and alternatively, in Oxford, the the semesters and the school year starts a little different than it does in America. In America, the the college year starts usually around the last week of um, August and usually ends somewhere around mid-May. In 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 England, in Oxford, the school year starts at the end of September. Um, and ends around the end of June. So, so it, it's a little different. But um, at any rate, I was a history major anyway, and um, I was accepted um, at St. Catherine's College, which is one of the newer schools. I think it's the most recent one at Oxford University. A lot, a lot of people may not be aware of this. Um, Oxford University is really composed of around 35 smaller schools that when you combine them together form Oxford University. But once you're over there, you don't associate with Oxford University. You associate with what college you you would you would belong to. So for me, it would St. Catharines. Some of the, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the more notable, probably some of the more famous colleges are Christ Church. That's probably the most famous one. University College. That's where Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. Um, and you have these 35 schools that basically compose the entire university. I was a history major anyway, so. I got over there in uh, the fall of 1992 and just studied European history, French Revolution, the English Civil War, um, you know, different European philosophies, you know, Immanuel Kant, people like that. Um, and this this went from uh, September of 92 to June of 1993, and and it was really over there. It was really during this time frame where I was introduced to what you would call sort of the Hermetic tradition. Um, and this was coming out of a an English um, author named Francis Yates, who wrote extensively about how the Hermetic tradition, um, you know, coming out of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, ultimately being carried forward by modern-day secret societies, such as Freemasonry and the Oddfellows, um, was really impacting, you know, society on, you know, a religious, a socioeconomic, cultural, you know, influence upon them. And I just became impressed with this, and it just started my journey um, in researching this material um, and, it, and it really was 20 years ago, you know, 1992, 93, that, um, you know, I guess you could say the seed was planted that ultimately um, turned into the mighty oak that is the uh, Royal Arch of Enoch. Yeah, I mean, and it's a huge book. It's about, I think it's, a, it's about 700 pages is about what it is. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I really encourage people to go out and get a copy of it or to get the ebook. But... You mentioned- and wait, to sum up the book, it is essentially um, a very comprehensive history of the Western Hermetic tradition. Um, just to let people know what it is, The Royal Ark of Enoch, it's a book um, that you've recently written. Can you give us a, a little bit better summary uh, yeah, starting into yeah. it? No, that, that, that's a, it is sort of what you suggest. I, I, it is sort of a sort of primer uh, underlying history, um, you know, what you would almost call like an occult or hermetic history of Western civilization. Um, but the crux of the book, um, or a large part of it, has to do with um, this book that was left out of the Bible called the Book of Enoch, or One Enoch, uh-huh. um, which, was, which was drafted around 350 to Weren't there two of them? Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, 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 isn't there One Enoch and Two Enoch as well? There's One Enoch, Two Enoch, and Three Enoch. Ah, uh, okay, there are three um, of them. But, but there's three of them, actually. Um, but the, the, the most important one is the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two, the other two also date, you know, are very early as well. But one Enoch dates from around 300 to 350 BCE, um, and it details this character named Enoch who is transported into heaven in corporeal form in the Book of Genesis. The Book of Enoch just documents what he sees in heaven and, and his interaction with uh, both archangels, archangels, and these group of fallen angels known as the Watchers or the Archons, um, and, right? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Now, now, are the Watchers synonymous with uh, the Archons? Um, in, 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 in Gnosticism, you have. I, I, want, I want to go so far as to say they're synonymous, but they definitely, um, you know, kind of parallel each other with okay. the Gnostic Archons. Um, the Watchers are turn up in the Book of Genesis. This is the group of fallen angels who have displeased God by coming down to Earth and mating with the human human women creating this race of giants called the Nephilim. Um, that comes out of the book of Genesis. Um, and they displease God by doing that. 
Enoch, when, when, he, when he's up in heaven, sort of interacts with these fallen angels, gleans a lot of knowledge from them, and sort of acts as an intermediary um, between them and God to try to get them back into God's favor. Um, at any rate, the, the, book, the book is lost from Western civilization from around 2-3 Common Era all the way up until 1773, um, when a Freemason and uh, explorer named James Bruce um, returns from Ethiopia with four copies of the book. Mm. Up until then, there was no copies in Europe or, or Western civilization. Um, how did he get four? Book... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Now, now were they preserved in Ethiopia by a by a monastery, or were they unearthed, or how did how did he come about? Uh, or how did they I believe it's, it's a, that's a great question. I believe they were um, they they were the copies came out of a monastery or temple in Ethiopia. Right, and there are I, I, there I, are a lot of temples oh, in yes. Ethiopia and northern Africa that still have these ancient manuscripts, and that, you can just kind of I mean just kind of wander in and observe them. There, it's 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 weird how even in the modern era there are places where ancient manuscripts pretty much sit open in monasteries unprotected. Well, people in just very, that, in very remote parts of the world, and people just read them that, like that, regular books. Yeah, that's right. He comes back, and he comes back with them, and they, they get deposited in the basement of the Bodleian Library at Oxford University, where they basically collect dust until 1821, um, where they're finally translated into English. Um, but, but at any rate, the crux of the, 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 the Royal Arch of Enoch book is that um, you have this high-degree system being developed um, of Freemasonry in France in the 1740s, 1750s, which is in, this one particular degree called the Royal Arch of Enoch is incorporating elements of one Enoch into it, which which shouldn't be happening because the book was lost to Western civilization. So I present the hypothesis that clearly there must have been a book floating around Europe or at least archived somewhere secretly in Europe prior to Bruce returning to Europe with copies of it. So, and I present evidence um, in the Royal Arch mm -hmm. that it is this particular high degree that is really defining a lot of the philosophy, the symbol symbolic interpretations that are being used in Western civilization, the United States, as a Masonic Republic, things of that nature. So before we get into the actual book, let me, <clears throat> let me just ask, uh, and if there is a distinction, let me ask if there is a distinction that, that, that you make between, <clears throat> excuse me, hermeticism and monasticism. W where is the big difference between the two of those in the West? Well, hermetic, hermeticism is basically comes out of the Renaissance, um, which is basically the study of this text called the Corpus Hermeticum, which is um, translated on the behest of the Medici family by a guy named Marcello Ficino. Uh -huh. and, the entire and the entire purpose of Hermeticism is to become like God. It deals with a lot of alchemy, philosophical interpretations. This, goes, this goes back to the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, which date back to the, the Egyptian era or a little bit later. That's absolutely correct. The Corpus yeah. Hermeticum is, is allegedly written by um, Hermes Trismegistus, um, and it's, it's attributed to him. Of course, he obviously most likely never existed. Well, right, sure. I mean, it's a yeah. you, you, who knows right. if it's a it's a compilation or a, right. But, okay, and and it, it's it's from the, it's from this translation that you get a lot of philosophies relating to things like alchemy, mysticism, the occult. Um, and, and it's out of this, you know, hermetic tradition um, and the interpretation of astrology, the importance of the sun, the moon, the Egyptian mysteries, the ancient Egyptian mystery schools, um, where you have, you know, you know, you have these ideas, these new age sort of ideals coming into the Enlightenment, which are, of course, carried on in modern day secret society like Freemasonry. You know, monasticism is sort of more of a religious tradition. Um, regarding, um, you know, the, the tenets of particular, of, of particular religions, um, you know, Christianity, Judaic Christianity, the Abrahamic faiths. Um, but they kind of intertwine um, because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the monastic traditions, you know, and I guess in the Christian world you'd be talking of people like St. Augustine. Right, uh, the Carthusians. Yeah. Well, they intertwine in the Renaissance because a lot of the, right. the educated people who were studying Hermeticism were, were the monks. monks. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely, and a lot of the you know uh, the, the biggie the biggie when it comes to all this is Thomas Aquinas, uh -huh. whose um, you know Summa yeah. Theologica right. is, is based on this is based on this Gnostic you know sort of Hermetic teaching that goes back to the first second century. These writings by this character known as Dionysius the Pseudo Aeropagite, um, huh. and, and what he's basically what what Aquinas is trying to do is basically Christianize 
what you would call Neoplatonism or Platonism, right, which yeah. is sort of this belief in the supreme being, the immortality of the soul, the reconciliation of the Greco-Roman pagan mysteries with Christianity. Um, and yeah, they definitely, the, the two traditions definitely become intertwined, you know, and, and are, you know, linked together, um, you know, primarily at, during the Renaissance time. And those Neoplatonic schools were very big in Greece, and they were run by different people, Um you know, you 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 uh, mentioned um, the, the 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 ascension of uh, Enoch to the Most High, and so and so on, and you know, passing through the the Watchers and things like that. It it um, it sort of parallels the story of also later mystics who tried to do the same thing, like uh, Simon Magnus, um, and things like that. You know, passing through and trying to achieve that 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 state of mind. Um, but I want to actually get into some of the symbolism of your book um and you start with in chapter 1 by 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 talking about different symbols and what they mean and where they come from so uh the first thing i i i want to ask you is let's just go through masonic symbolism 101 what does the sun mean what is the lost world what is you know what are these symbols what importance do they have and what is their historical root um, right. Uh, yeah. No. Sure. Let's the, start with the, the sun because that's that's a well, pretty what, good starting point. Right. Well, what you have within Freemasonry, um, you know, is 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 and you know, people like Masonic scholars like Albert Mackey and I talk about it, and, and Albert Pike. You know, probably the most important symbol within Freemasonry is the sun. Um, you know, and this is of course, you know, without the sun there can't be light and life on, on planet Earth. It's the life giver. Um, and, you know, you will see the Masonic Lodge. This is the Blue Lodge. This is the first three degrees of Freemasonry, um, where, you know, the worshipful master, who's the guy who runs the temple, he sits in the east representing a rising sun. Then he, he's assisted by two wardens, um, a junior and a senior warden. Um, these sit in the, um, one sits in the um, south and one sits in the west. Of course, the one who sits in the south represents the sun at noonday, and the one sitting in the west, of course, represents the setting sun. So, I mean, the triple division of governance in the Masonic Lodge represents the three phases of the sun on a daily basis. Um, the third degree, if, if you're not familiar, I'll just kind of um, go through this, because this ties in to the lost wor- wor- uh, word, excuse me, um, and this ties into the importance of the Royal Arch Ceremonial, where, if you're not familiar with Blue Lodge Freemasonry, these are the first three degrees of Freemasonry. They're called the Entered Apprentice, the Fellowcraft, and the Master Mason. Until you become a Master Mason or you go through the third degree, that's when you're a Freemason. Up until then, you can't hold yourself out as one. Um, and just for the sake of time, basically, and I, I mean, I know, you know we're limited in time here, so I'm just going to kind of cut through this sort of quickly. In a nutshell, the first degree is sort of like an introductory degree. The second degree, the Fellowcraft, is more of an you know, explanatory degree. The third degree is what you would call your sort of occult, you know, hidden symbol, symbolic, you know, you know, degree, degree in, in, in Blue Lodge where, you know, and this has been documented before on the History Channel and things like that, so I'm not really saying anything that's like really, you know, kept secret anymore. And, you're and, the, and, and the History Channel is the authority on, on all things occult. And well, mystical. no, <laughs> you, you, see, you, see, you see this stuff on A&E, sure. you see it on YouTube now. Right. But in a nutshell, the guy, the person who is going through the ritual plays this character called Hiram Abiff, who is building, the, who is the architect in charge of Solomon's Temple. In a nutshell, he possesses um, he possesses um, something called the lost word of a master mason, which is the secret name of God, which makes all learning possible. And he, he possesses it, and he's building the temple. And these three guys working for him, these three fellow crafts, they all want this name. They all want this secret word, and they they threaten to kill him to extract it, and, and he won't give it up. And he's killed by these three fellow craft. Um, and they bury his body. Um, you know, they, they conceal his body, and, and ultimately. The, the, when, when Hiram Abiff is killed, the word is quote unquote lost. Um, no one has it anymore. You know, Hiram had it with his death. It's, it's gone forever. Um, and in a nutshell, the, the candidate is resurrected. Um, Hiram Abiff is resurrected. And of course, what you're really dealing with is, is, is basically the mysteries of Osiris, um, you know, coming out of Egypt, who is of course this dead and resurrected sun god. Um, and you will see the, you know, you will see the symbology in Blue Lodge where Hiram Abiff possesses this secret name. He's killed by these three fellow craft. 
He's buried west of the temple. That's, of course, the setting sun or the dying sun. Um, King Solomon, upon learning of the death, sends 12 fellow craft to look for him. Um, the 12 fellow craft are, of course, the 12 houses of the Zodiac who are going looking for their lost solar ruler. When they find him, he, he, he's resurrected on the third try, which is called, they, they, they try rep, resurrecting him with the grip of an entered apprentice, which doesn't work. Fellow craft, that doesn't work. Then they finally try the grip of a master mason, which is also called the strong grip of a lion's paw. That works and he's resurrected. Of course, the, the lion's paw is a reference to the sign of Leo, which is the sole house of the sun. And what happens is when, when Hiram is resurrected or the candidate, he, he's presented with, with to, he's presented by another Freemason, the guy resurrecting him on what's called the five points of fellowship. Um, and, and you have to form these five points in order to transfer what's called the substitute word of a master mason. Because remember, the true word's been lost, so you, say you, you, you have a substitute word that's whispered in the candidate's ear, you know, in a very low breath. And of course, the five points represent a pentagram. And if you know your Albert Pike um, in this, Pike tells you, well, the five points are a pentagram, and this represents the Egyptian dog star Sirius. Well, where does that tie in? Well, of course, Sirius in the Egyptian stellar mysteries was, of course, the virgin goddess Isis. Um, and, and the nexus that you're looking for is she possessed the secret name of a sun god named Amun-Re or Ra, and it was through this secret name that she possessed she was able to resurrect Osiris to produce his solar heir named Horus. So you'll see the parallels there with these five points, the pentagram and the, you know, the Egyptian dog star. And, you know, again, you're dealing with just a basically retelling of the Egyptian Osirian mystery, as it were. This ties into the Royal Arch degree, both in the Scottish Rite system and the York Rite system, which are basically your two premier high degree systems in the world, in the United States, if not the world, where in the Royal Arch ceremonial, this word that Hiram Abiff had that's lost is recovered. They find it. The Freemasons, the temple builders, discover this hidden treasure vault on the Temple Mount, and it's in this, in this treasure vault um, that they find the secret name of Hiram Abiff, the secret name of God, which you're more accurately to call the Tetragrammaton. And this ties into this Enochian, um, you know, Masonic lore um, tying into the Book of Enoch, where you had Enoch concealing the secret name of God in this underground vault to thwart God, um, to thwart the flood of Noah. And, and it's on these two pillars called the Pillars of Enoch that Enoch has inscribed all this knowledge which is essentially the seven liberal arts and sciences and mathematical knowledge that he gleaned from interacting with these angels and archangels um, in, 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 in his visit to the uh, afterlife or heaven, as it were. So, you know, th th and there's a lot more going on, but, um, you know, in a nutshell, that's where a lot of your sun iconography comes from. And, of course, the lost word. Um, which is lost in the Blue Lodge, but is found later on in the higher degrees. So then, you 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 mentioned that he uh, you mentioned science and th math things like that that were brought back. Right. Yeah. When 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 Enoch when Enoch goes um, in, into heaven, um, he's one of two people. Let me just say he's one of two people in the Bible to never die a physical death. It's him and the prophet Elijah. Um, these are generally your two what are also called your two witnesses to Revelation. Um, they they never die a physical death, um, and of course, if you get into some of the more, I, I kind of stay away from it in in the Royal Arch of Enoch book, but I'm certainly aware of it. If you're familiar with ancient astronaut theory, you know th these are the two guys who are carted off by the by the space aliens to you know according to like Eric von Daniken and people. Now, like that. I want to just do a quick uh, a quick sidebar here. Um, it's yeah. really easy to get into ancient alien and ancient, you know, ancient alien theories when you're talking about stuff like this. Why did you steer clear of that particularly? Was it, I mean, it was a conscious choice you made. You just, you didn't even kind of bring it up at all, or is I it? Didn't bring, yeah, I didn't bring it up at all. The it, it kind of really didn't really fit into to, to the book. Mm -hmm. um, whether, whether or not, you know, I mean, whether or not you believe these guys. Right. Uh, you didn't want to go off into the realm of the fantastical hypothesis. You wanted to keep it more to historical relevancy. Right. That's correct. But I, I will say this, and I do talk about this briefly in the, in the Royal Arch of Enoch book. Um, you, know, you know, the whole thing with Enoch and, and Elijah, I kind of like sidestepped it. That's really, it's really not my bailiwick. Um, but the, it's interesting you talk about 
um, uh, about like, you know, it's not UFOs per se, but it definitely ties into extraterrestrial life. Um, extraterrestrial life actually does turn up in Freemasonry um, and a belief in it. Um, and it comes out of a Freemasonic monitor, um, which is a, just a fancy way of saying a little Masonic, um, you know, guidebook on rituals. Um, it's published in the late 1700s by a Freemason in America called Thomas Smith Webb, who is a very important Masonic ritualist. Um, he's one of the premier characters or persons behind the York Rite of Freemasonry. Um, at any rate, in this monitor, um, and I, I can't remember the exact language. I always, I always flip-flop these, and I always mess this up. But he talks about, he says, well, he says, within Freemasonry, we believe in a plurality of worlds. When he's talking about his life on other planets, he said, in these other you know, worlds that contain this life are all under the protection of the great architect of the universe. Um, and and Webb Web is getting this language from um, a Dominican friar um, who comes out of the Hermetic tradition named Giordano Bruno, who in his writings uses similar terminology. That name sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, he uses the term infinity of worlds, or it may be flip-flopped. I, I'd have to look. But, um, yeah, Webb is can getting I, it from Bruno. Can I? And, uh, it, it, you'll see it in this Masonic monitor. So what I'm hearing is a lot of the uh, Masonic symbols and symbology uh, parallel or date back to Hermetic tradition, which was founded during the period of ancient Egypt, which was also very fascinated with heavenly, heavenly bodies, uh, the astrology, the zodiac, etc., etc. Are all of these symbols and mystic traditions pre-scientific ways to catalog the universe, the size of the universe, and the symbolic depth of, of man's place in the universe? Is that, I mean, I'm trying to kind of get where all of these sun symbols and star symbols are, what, what they're adding up to well, what, uh, in what, terms what, of how they, how they translate into wisdom. Well, what, they're, what, they, what, they're, what you have with the Hermetic tradition coming out of the Renaissance is, you know, you know this concept of, you know, pre-Christian knowledge, the importance, you know, of the sun, the moon, you know, these solar legends, these lunar legends, um, you, know, and, you know, are they being carried forward in the Abrahamic religions under different names? You have that coming out of it, of coming out of the Renaissance. And within Freemasonry, the, the modern day, you know, I mean, basically you have, I mean, it, it's hard to date when Freemasonry, you know, officially starts. I mean, it depends on who you really want to talk to. But you clearly have these, you know, stone workers who are using these, you know, you know, architectural secrets, you know, Kabbalistic secrets to align these buildings to the stars, things of that nature. Of course, modern-day Freemasonry as it exists today is founded in 1717. Um, and, of course, you know, I'm going to get to your answer in a minute, but, you know, it's important to recognize that when we talk about Freemasonry incorporating these, you know, mystery traditions, it's, it's much broader than just like, you know, you know, I hear a lot of times, you know, oh, it's the Egyptian. Well, it's a lot more than that, you know. There's, it's a, it's, you know, they incorporate elements, Freemasonry incorporates elements of Mithraism, the mysteries of Eleusius, the Egyptian mysteries, the Greco-Roman mysteries, Zoroastrianism, um, you know, all that stuff, you know, all, all those traditions you'll find here and there in Freemasonry. I suppose that what it's trying to add up to is, um, it, it's basically trying to initiate a person into what you would, what the Gnostics quite simply would call Gnosis, that you're go undergoing these rituals to experience um, some sort of, you know, Gnostic gnosis and, you know, change within yourself to better society, however you see fit. Um, you know, you often hear that, you know, what is the secret of Freemasonry? Well, the secret is how it is to be found in each individual Mason, you know, because it can vary from Mason to Mason. And what they're really trying to say with that is, you know, it's, it's this divine spark that they're trying to, you know, ignite in you and how, however you you know, whatever that divine spark varies from Mason to Mason. And I think that what you're trying to see is, you know, these sort of lost civilizations like Egypt, you know, the, you know, the, these sort of pre-Christian, you know, ancient mystery civilizations, Freemasons trying to draw back from those to carry forward modern society. It's almost like a back to the future thing where they're using these ancient, ancient religions, these ancient symbols, you know, the importance of the sun, the stars, you know, which in the ancient tradition, you know, ancient mysteries was, you know, well, the, since they're in the heavens, they're close to God, so we want to emulate them to become godlike ourselves, you know, to have this divine spark, this divine awakening within ourselves, 
and um, you know they're using these symbols to carry forward this modern day you know sort of mystery school sure. um, that it set up in 1717. So let's go back to the to the actual book of Enoch. Why why was it not included in in the Bible? Uh, Bible 1.0, as it, as sure, it came out. There's, there's several reasons for that. Um, the, 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 the most common um, is it's twofold. One is that, you know, you're dealing with controversial subject matter right off the bat. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, a person interacting with fallen angels, demons, things of that nature. Yet, in, in the book of Enoch, the, the difference between Enoch's interaction and these demons and the knowledge he's gleaning is in the book of Enoch, the knowledge is considered godly. It's considered close to God. It's not forbidden. It's considered positive. Where in the Bible, in the New Testament, the wisdom is considered, you know, unholy and evil. So right off the bat, you have, um, you know, a, 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 a contradiction going on, you know, right from get-go, you know, right from the start. And, and you're, the, the, the conjecture is that Enoch is given these, these seven secret technologies, you know, whether, whether they be like mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, uh, what, what are these, what are, what is he, what is, what is the wisdom he comes back with? Well, he, he, it basically is turned into the seven liberal arts and sciences, which is like astronomy, reading and writing, rhetoric, philosophy, and mathematics. Um, when, when Enoch is in the afterlife, and let me just, I'll just say this real quick, um, the book of Enoch is written in the first person, where in the Bible, you know, it's Jesus did that, Moses did this, Mary went here, Caiaphas did that. The book of Enoch is, you know, I saw this, I was here, this angel told me this, this demon told me that, you know, I saw this. It's all written in the first person. Um, and in, in the book of Enoch, he identifies a lot of the angels by name, he identifies a lot of the watchers by name. He says, this one was the master of reading and writing, this one was the master of weapons making, this one knew astronomy, this one knew how to calculate so, you know, you know he, he identifies them as who they are, and, and the, the reason what you have is he comes back down to earth, and like I said, in the Old Testament, the wisdom is considered, you know, you know not, not kosher, basically. But in the Book of Enoch, it's considered holy wisdom. And where, where this ties into sort of, you know, where the Bible kind of comes out on top, um, on all of this, and this is sort of what where you get into, you know, in the in the in the nineteenth uh, century with anti-masonry is in in the Masonic, you know, monitors and in the you know legends of Enoch. Um, Enoch is of course um, the great grandfather of Noah of the flood of Noah, and you know th- this is where you get into these controversial subject matters where Enoch, um, you know, catches wind that the flood of Noah is coming and that God wants to eradicate mankind and basically start over. You know, and this also includes this wisdom that Enoch's brought back, brought back from heaven. But what Enoch does is, is, is he decides to thwart God's plan. He devises this scheme where he creates this thing called the Vault of Enoch, where he takes these two pillars and inscribes on one pillar the, you know, the seven liberal arts and sciences, and on the other pillar he inscribes mathematical wisdom. In, in between these pillars he puts the Tetragrammaton, which is the sacred name of God, and he buries them under these nine archways. Um, in a nutshell, the, the nine archways survived the flood of Noah, and um, it, you know this is the whole crux of the Masonic royal arch ritual. Now, are you saying un- that these this is uh, is there an actual physical place where these arches supposedly exist? Where I mean, these pillars well, supposedly it, exist, well, or is this it, is this it, completely it, all some symbology and, and mythology? Well, this is the, this is the million dollar question. Because, <laughs> yeah, no, this no, is the Indiana Jones question. Uh, well, here, well, here, here's the question: is no, it's a very good question to ask. Is it, it, in, in the Masonic ritual, this vault, this treasure vault, is uncovered whether they're building the second temple of Zerubbabel, they, 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 which is the second temple. They spring a trap door and discover the vault of Enoch. There are the two pillars. There's the tetragrammaton. Um, you know, there's the lost word of Hiram Abiff. And in the Masonic legend, legendary manuscripts, um, they talk about this this treasure vault having already been discovered by two people prior to the Mason finding it. Um, the, the, the first character is this person we were talking about earlier in the show called Hermes Trismegistus. Mm. And in the Masonic lore, he pronounces the secret name correctly and restores the seven liberal arts and sciences. The other person is a Greek mathematician named Pythagoras mm. who pronounces the name right and restores mathematics to the that's world. That's interesting. The, huh. I'm sorry? Pythagoras. Now, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you've got, you've got you ever the, heard the, mm-hmm. Go ahead. 
Well, yeah. So you've got the founder of of, of metaphysics and the founder of of, um, of mathematics, you know, geometry, right? Yeah. Mathematics. And of course, the Eureka moment that you know I have found it of Pythagoras is, of course, allegedly him pronouncing the you know the the secret name of God correctly. But you know, is this real history or is this just some made up legend? It depends on who you talk to. Um, the general consensus is it's just part of Masonic lore. It's just part of Masonic legend. Um, you know, it's just part of Masonic ritual. You know, however, you know, you know, you, you get into these concepts, and this is where you really get into some, you know, murky waters with this. Is you know, is this ritual trying to reflect some sort of real history? You know, and of course, in the Masonic, in the in the Masonic ritual, um, you know, this, you know, in the Royal Arch ceremonial, it's this treasure vault that's discovered on the Temple Mount. Um, you know, you know, by by Jewish temple builders, but in the earlier workings of the rite or the ritual, um, it's actually discovered by a coterie of Knights Templar. Um, and you know, you you have to start asking yourself, you know, is this ritual trying to convey, you know, some sort of lost history? You know, is is the is the vault of Enoch and this wisdom? Is this actually what the Knights Templar stumbled upon during their time in the Holy Land? I can't say for certain 100%, but it's definitely a valid theory, well, and it's definitely a play when you come to the Knights Templar. I think it, uh, well, I mean, I think if you look at the Knights Templar, I mean, they, if you look at their history and if you look at who they were, they were, they were crusaders, they, they basically, I mean, you know, they were more powerful than the Knights of St. John or the Knights of Malta by, 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 by multitudes. They held several crusader fortresses in the Holy Land, and they were, the, I believe, the last uh, crusader um, fortress to fall was was a Templar fortress, uh, if I remember my history correctly. But um, d- during the Crusades, but uh, when they, but 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 they amassed a great amount of wealth and knowledge and libraries and castles and these types of things. And uh, whereas the Knights Hospitaller, uh, you know, the Knights of Saint John, the Knights of Malta didn't didn't have as much of that. They they almost look like minor orders compared to the Templars. Um, so I could see where that, uh, where that could, where, where, where the connection could be made because you have to ask, well, well, where are they getting all of this from? Where are they, uh, you know, are they, are, do they know something that the other orders don't? Yeah, well, that's absolutely correct because, you know, clearly when the Knights Templar are in the Holy Land, you know, and, and I, I've mentioned this on other shows, clearly, you know, I mean, and this isn't anything, you know, conspiratorial or anything, I mean, Clearly, when they return to Europe, they ha- they have found something over there. Whatever because, uh, that something they is, had an is, immense is amount of money. They had an immense Go amount ahead, of I'm money um, <clears throat> that they that they had stored up, and they really began the modern foundations of loaning and banking almost. <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, believe- eco- economics, um, chemistry, mathematics, um, uh, mathematics for rudimentary physical concepts like catapults and and things like that that were. Um, you know, they they date back to Greece, but they were sort of lost to the Western world until after that period of time, right? Well, so that's, 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 until the, until the pre-Renaissance when they so, returned from the Holy Lands with so all. So where, these. and you know, it comes back to the original question: Well, where did the Knights Templar find this information, and why was it? And the other question I, that I ask as well is: Why the Knights Templar and not the Knights Hospitaller, or not the Knights uh, the Knights of, uh, the Knights of Malta, or something like that? Well, we know that the Templars were over there. Like you said, they're the more powerful of the orders. They're clearly yes. over there excavating the Temple Mount, which, according to the Masonic ritual, where this treasure vault's found. I believe that when the Templars came back to Europe, I mean, I agree with you guys. I think they, they found something over there. This was most likely, like you said, Kabbalistic wisdom, uh, you know, myth, you know, texts regarding mysticism. Um, you know, it, there probably was some material warfare you know, knowledge. Uh, you know, practical knowledge about warfare and things like that. Uh, yeah, there was probably, you know, some material wealth is there. But, like, you look when they come back to Europe, I mean, all of a sudden you've got these medieval Gothic cathedrals, you know, popping up using the sacred, you know, the golden ratio being aligned to the wind, you oh, know, yeah. the solstices and the, you know, equinoxes. So, I mean, clearly these guys came back, you know, with something. I mean, you know, could a copy of a Book of Enoch been in their possession? I mean, yeah, I mean, sure. Or, you know, or maybe even something even greater, you know, like a... Uh, you know, the treasure vault, uh, you know, the pillars of Enoch or some sort of ancient, uh, 
you know, communication device or something that had uh, the secret name of God on it. I mean, well, this, it's, very, it's very possible. This leads into my favorite period of history, which is this, this Renaissance Enlightenment period. Love it. Where you do have a lot of people running around with new wisdom from the East, kind of passing themselves off as, well, as mystics and, and, and Templars, etc. And you get people like John Dee, who are completely fascinating, and you don't know where John Dee got everything from. I mean, he... John Dee showed up in in England with with manuscripts. Uh, like I think he he was supposedly in possession of the Voynich manuscript at some point. You also Who knows to, where that came from? You um, also have to so, remember that the Byzantine Empire collapsed in I think 1453. So a lot of those scholars that were in the East who may have had some of those texts began to flood west to avoid the uh, Ottoman Turks. Well, and also with D. You have, um, you know, I've been asked this before, as if there was a copy of, um, you know, one Enoch floating around prior to Bruce coming back. Who could have had it? And D is a perfect character to, to throw into that mix. Yeah, but then where would he have gotten it? Well, that's maybe that's the million-dollar bi- question also. <laughs> maybe the Byzantine, yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe the Byzantines you know, I mean, like, had it. Go ahead. I, I, I was just throwing a suggestion out there. I said maybe the Byzantines had it. It's very possible. I mean, we'll probably never know for certain... D is a, definitely a likely candidate for having this thing for two reasons. One is because of his magic that he develops with Edward Kelly called Enochian magic. I mean, this is the communication with the angels. I mean, he's naming it after Enoch. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, right off the bat, you know, we gotta, we gotta sit up in our chairs when we hear that. Plus, we know that D, along with Kelly, you know, uh, Raleigh, Drake, um, you know, William Cecil were all involved in Walsingham spiring. And you actually have in Walter Raleigh's um, A History of the World, he actually mentions the Book of Enoch containing an astrology book or an astronomy book, which it does. So, you know, where did, where did Raleigh all of a sudden find this out? He probably found it out from D because D probably had a copy of it. Where now, would, it, the would, would, the of book of, would the Book of Enoch be considered heretical to have if, if oh, you were yeah. discovered with it? I mean, if if you were just your run of the mill monk who had a copy of it lying in your in your quarters and somebody found it, would you be you know burned for having it or was, was well, no. If you were keeping it to yourself and obviously if he had a copy in Protestant England and he's in with the Queen anyway, he mm-hmm. would have been safe with it. What what kind of what was picking the people off? What was picking the Inquisition off at at that point in time was these characters like Bruno running around basically saying the Bible is just a solar lunar allegory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that would get you in big trouble. But, um, you know, if, if you kind of kept it to yourself and you didn't get up on a soapbox and, and spout it out, um, you know, you, you, you would kind of go under the radar. Um, I mean, I know um, what, one of the guys who really ticked off the church was, um, this is pre, a little pre-Renaissance, he's called oftentimes the morning star of the Renaissance, was um, John Wycliffe at Oxford. Oh, yes. He was, yeah, he was translating the Bible into English. Um, and that drove the church nuts because, um, you know, they kind of were, you know, fearful that, you know, maybe some of the Bibles, you know, more exoteric secrets would come out. And uh, Wycliffe was translating the Bible and um, died. And I think somewhere like 80 years after he was dead, the church actually dug up his bones and burned them or something. That's how angry they were with this guy. But, um, what, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you were just keeping the information to yourself, you would kind of go under the radar. They didn't want you getting on a soapbox or anything. Right. If I mean, of course not. But and especially during yeah, nobody during wanted another period. Luther. No, no, <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I mean, no. Luther's intention wasn't even to break away. from Well, he the translated church, the Bible into German. Right, German, right. They, they were able to break ties with Rome because of that. Because basically. of that translation, right? Yeah. And uh, the church wanted to prevent that. I'm, I'm sure. But um, now there was another thing that you mentioned that I wanted to get to. It was the Kabbalah tree of wisdom. Uh that I wanted to talk to you about, and I, I don't know why this popped into my head. It kind of looks a little bit like the, like the design of Washington, D.C. Um, but uh, h- how is that connected into this at all? Yeah, we could talk about that. I, I, I get into, I have a whole chapter on the, uh, you know, esoteric Masonic architecture of D.C. Um, it's more solar and Masonic than I would say Kabbalistic, but you clearly have, um, you know, influence of Kabbalah, um, you know, which is in a nutshell the Jewish mystery tradition. You know, just to just to condense it real fast, um, and you will clearly see this um, reflected in the higher degrees, um, mainly you know Scottish Rite, where you have um, your 22 paths of Hebrew Kabbalah and your 10 Sephirot, and of course you add 22 plus 10, you have 32. I mean, these are your 32 degrees 
of um, you know Scottish Rite Freemasonry. Then you had this secret um, hidden hidden Sephiroth, which is a combination of the other ten, which is called Doth. You combine that, and then you have thirty-three. Of course, this is your thirty-third degree of Scottish Rite. Of course, the twenty-two you know you know uh, paths are reflective of the uh, twenty-two trump cards of the Tarot. Um, and of course, you know a lot of the you know you know a, a lot of the um, uh, Blue Lodge uh, symbology, and even in the higher degrees, you're dealing with Jewish mysticism, things of the construction of the Temple of, uh, of Solomon, um, the construction of the Temple of Zerubbabel, um, you know, coming out of Babylon, where the, the, the Hebrews are allowed to return to the Holy Land to construct the Second Temple. Um, you know, you'll definitely see a lot of Kabbalistic teachings, um, you know, combined into um, Freemasonry, and you'll find this again with different ways to interpret the. Uh, Secret name of God, um, you know. Well, I can't remember sense. exactly what where I heard this. Now I'm trying. I'm racking my brain, but I remember reading an article or hearing an interview where somebody was talking about how Freemasonry and and um, maybe some Kabbalism were foundational philosophies behind the original space program back in the 1940s and 50s. You may have heard that from, <laughs> from no from me. That, um, was it was it you? No, it wasn't me. I, what, what I talked about before, it's, it's a good subject matter. Or like uh, the, uh, the rocket, the, the original venture of the rocket was a Freemason, or I can't remember yeah, what it was. Well, well, what you got going on there, this is, this is a little, it's not off the beaten subject. I don't mind talking about it. Um, what you have in America is, I, I, there, there's a lot of symbology with NASA that ties into Freemasonry. Right, I get NASA. Into the, yeah, I get into the analysts, the... the um, the symbology of the Apollo 13 mission, mm. um, which I have a whole thing in the book on. But you oh, right, the, right. Okay, there we go. Yeah, the, the, guy, the guy who's the father of modern-day rocketry is this guy in California named Jack Parsons. And he, um, he's the head of um, California's OTO Temple, which is this secret society founded by this um, uh, British mystic. Yeah, the Ordo Temple Orientis. Right. right. And this is founded by Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. and. And Parsons is a huge disciple of, of Crowley, and it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's Parsons who's developing this rocketry, which, you know, ultimately becomes nuclear, you know, nuclear, you know, intercontinental weapons, and of course the space program. And of course, you know, some of the, you know, rocket scientists that helped us out were, of course, the Nazis, um, you know, Werner Braun Brown, who, you know, brought They were the very into the occult. Symbology. Yeah, and absolutely. And well, you know, I mean, these guys take are a look coming, at the SS you know, rings. Come, coming here via the CIA and paperclip. But if you get into a lot of the NASA programs, you know, I mean, you know, you, you know, you'll see you've got, you know, what's the moon missions called Apollo? Well, Apollo's the sun god. So you have the unification of the moon and the sun. This is Gnosticism. This is, you know, what the Rosicrucians would call your alchemical wedding of the masculine and the feminine. The masculine's the sun, the feminine's of course the moon. You know, you've got other programs called Gemini. Um, Gemini, of course, is ruled by the planet Mercury, which is, of course, Hermes to the Greeks. So you have your Mercury and Gemini missions, and of course, but, Hermes. Okay, so I guess I guess what my question is: you have, you know, things like like the like the map of Washington relates to the symbology, and then all of these NASA NASA stuff relates to this symbology. Is this just because symbology? This symbology is the shorthand of. The, the educated people in power who feel like they need to express this symbology through their work, or it, it does it like does it add up to something more than that? The, 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 it, it's really coming out of the it's coming out of this teaching called "as above, so below." Oh, I see. Is, which is the Hermetic maxim, and this is of course of Hermes Trismegistus. That, in a nutshell, this is talked about in the works of Raymond Lully. Giordano Bruno talks about this. In a nutshell. You want to draw the powers down from the heavens in these buildings of import, in these city templates, so you're reflecting the stars, the moon, the heavens, the planets, and you're, you're basically reflecting, since God's in heaven, you're reflecting the heavens here on earth. Um, so they're building off of the template of the symbology as an antenna or a resonator or something that's going to amplify the power of those symbols through the work. I would say that's sort of, that's sort of right. It's basically they want to draw down the power of the heavens and incorporate it here on Earth. So you will see, you know, alignments to the solstices, the equinoxes. So, you know, if, if, if you're going to, you know, depending on the building, one of the ones I talk about in, in the Royal Arts book in the, um, 
in the um, D.C. chapter, um, in, the, in, the, in the chapter on Washington, D.C., for example, um, like the Supreme Court building, the cornerstone is laid on October 13th. This is, of course, aligning the building to the constellation Libra, which is the great scales of justice in the sky. So you're symbolic, symbolically drawing down the power of justice from the heavens to incorporate it into your building. Um, it's things like that um, that you'll see, you know, cornerstone ceremonies. Um, you've got your federal triangle in, in, in Washington, which is composed of the White House, the Washington Monument, and the Capitol, which, of course, forms your Pythagorean white triangle. This is, of course, Pythagoras again. The, the Pythagorean white triangle is, of course, the emblem of the sun and the moon. Um, with your perfection, your, your perfected, you know, you know, being, being the hypotenuse, which of course would be Pennsylvania Avenue. Of course, Pennsylvania is the keystone state. You know, a keystone is what creates a royal art. Sure. Archway. Okay. So uh, on to, and on it goes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, you know, I've got to say <laughs> about it. <laughs> well, I want to, I, I want to, uh, you, you, these laying of the stones and the positioning of them up at certain um, uh, angles uh, in reference to the stars uh, made me think of this black stone that's at the center of the Kaaba, which is the, the mosque at the, the Hajj there in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, do you know anything about this black stone? You know yeah, what I'm talking I, I, about? Yeah, yeah, I I do I know exactly what you're Everybody talking about. Everybody goes and bows and kisses to it. I mean, it's like the center of the Islamic holy tradition is this is this smooth black stone at the corner of the it's, You're talking about you're talking about the thing in, in it, you, I think you're talking about the thing in Mecca, the Yeah, yeah, the thing in Mecca. The the, the Kaaba, I think. Yeah, the called. Kaaba, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, this is supposedly um, I talk about it in the Royal Arch of Enoch book. This is the stuff that got Solomon Rushdie into trouble, and I mentioned it briefly in there that you're dealing with, according according to, um, you know, you know, again, sort of this astral theory, you know, of religions that Islam is veiled is 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 veiled, um, you know, adoration of the planet Venus, um, you know, the black cube there, of course, it supposedly has some sort of sigil or symbol in it representing the planet Venus. And of course, Venus is sort of this mother goddess who, you know, you know, birth Earth, and of course, you know, you know, Earth is green, and you'll see a lot of the Islamic banners are green, um, things of that nature. But of course, also you have—I um, don't mention the Royal Arch of Enoch book, but I've heard this before—is of course, um, you get into concepts of you know the the adoration, well, not adoration, it's probably not the word, right word, but of course, um, you know, the black cube has also come to symbolize or symbolizes the planet Saturn. So, you know, you go there and what do you do? You make rings around this thing. You know, is this some sort of like Saturnian, mm. you know, you know, Saturnalia? Um, it's a little controversial. And then of course you got you've got on the um the Kaaba there, um, and you probably know more about this than me, is is apparently there's some sort of rock that's been attached to it or or well, some sort of you try to do any research post- on it, and it just comes up very vague what the origin of the stone is, what it's made of, what there's it symbolizes. Sort of, <laughs> yeah, there's some sort of I, I don't I don't I'm not an expert on it, but I think there's some sort of stone on it that's somehow attached to it that supposedly is of extraterrestrial origin of some kind. Right, it may be a meteorite. Of- yeah, that's it. Um, I'm no expert on it. I've heard it. I've heard that story before. Um, but you know, yeah, you definitely have, um, you know, a lot, a lot going on there. And of course you'll find this in some of the other, you know, religions of the world with, you know, the concept of a sacred rock, um, you know, is, is nothing new. You know, you have the, um, the stone of Skan there, which is of course supposed to be, um, the stone of Jacob. The Blarney the stone. Of, yeah. The Kings of Queen England are on. And of course the, um, the uh, sepulchre, which is the rock where uh, Jesus was supposed to be crucified, one. So yeah, you you know you'll definitely see you know this symbology in a lot of religions. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Ah, there there goes my throat. <laughs> but um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about because we don't have too much time left. But in, in just 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 for a few minutes, let's discuss the higher levels of Freemasonry and what they are. And also, if you could give us a little bit of information about some of the misconceptions that people have about Freemasons and Freemasonry, because there's a lot of the stuff that goes on. Oh, he's a 33rd degree Freemason. They want to take over the world. They're in league with the New World Order, and they're anti this, they're anti that, and they want to control the world, and all this other kind of stuff that, you know, uh, that, that they assign to Freemasonry, or that some people assign to Freemasonry. 
And I kind of wanted you to, to, to talk a little bit about that and a little bit, a little bit about those theories and, and what actually happens in the higher degrees as opposed to what people think is going on. Sure, absolutely. It's a very good question. I, I, I have no problem answering it. Um, I'll just have to give you a bit of a brief historical background on this. Sure. Um, what you have happening is um, we talked about the Blue Lodge of Freemasonry being founded in England in 1717. And again, this is um, degrees one, two, and three. Um, which we've already talked about. Um, shortly after 1717, a Freemason and a Presbyterian minister writes these uh, write, writes a treatise called the Constitutions of Freemasonry. This is important because he and this ties into the high degrees. You'll see why in a minute. Um, he he writes this legendary history of the Freemasons going all the way back to Adam and Eve. I stress the word again, legendary. At any rate, he basically says that. Freemasonry comes from these Germanic Teutonic stoneworkers who were building these medieval Gothic cathedrals and had these occult Kabbalistic architectural secrets that they learned from these biblical stonemasons. These are guys building things like the you know the Tower of Babel, things like that. If that comes out, and then what happens is in 1737, this French. He's, he's English. He's an Englishman, but he's living in France. Named Andrew Michael the Chevalier Ramsay, he issues this thing called the Oration, um, or it's called Ramsay's Oration to the Masonic Lodges. What Ramsay does is he's an important character in history. He's been written out of all the history books. He's a mem- co-founder of the Royal Society. He's a tutor to Bonnie Prince Charlie. He issues this famous oration in 1737. So this is approximately 20 years after the formation of the Blue Lodge, and he says. It's very long, but I'm just going to summarize it. He says, in a nutshell, he says, yeah, Anderson's Constitution, he said, I can't really say I disagree with this. He said, but, you know, you know, you know, that, the, that there is some evidence that the Freemasons come from these Germanic stoneworkers. He said, yeah, there's some truth to that. He said, but that's not the real history of Freemasonry. He said, history, he said, the real Freemasons and the real, and the real Masonic order is an invention of the Pope in Rome. And the Freemasonry is pure Roman Catholicism. And he said, we know this because, he said, the real inventors of Freemasonry are the Knights Templar. He said, and he said, when they went to the Holy Land, he said, they brought back these Kabbalistic secrets of all these ancient mystery schools of Mithraism, Zoroastrianism, the Egyptian mysteries, Eleusius. He said, and the, and the Knights Templar, who are all Roman Catholic, are all in allegiance to the Pope. He said, they're the true inventors of, of Freemasonry, and Freemasonry is straight Roman Catholicism, and that's what Freemasonry is. Well, this causes massive problems all over the place. And what this does is this births, Ramsey's oration births what's called the high degrees of Freemasonry. And this gets into a little bit of controversial subject matter. I don't mind talking about it because numerous Masonic scholars have talked about it. But in the mid-1750s, 1740s, at this place in Paris, France, um, called the College of Claremont, the Jesuit order invents 25 new degrees of Freemasonry, as part of the counter-reformation to restore the Roman Catholic strain of the Stuart monarchy back to the throne of England. It's basically a spy device to restore Roman Catholicism back in England. Because remember, it's in England that Freemasonry is originally born. Right, so it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of, um, political, religious skullduggery. Right. It's, it's counter-espionage is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What, what, what happens is, these 25 degrees are being developed by the Jesuits. They're very Roman Catholic. That um, they have a lot of, you know, references to papal monarchy, things of that nature. The 25 degrees—they're called the Rite of Perfection. These these 25 degrees are brought into the United States via Haiti years later by a character named A.T. and Morin, and they are set up in Albany, New York, by a Freemason named Henry Franken, um, and it's called Henry Franken's Rite of Perfection in Albany, New York. These 25 degrees are what gets turned into what is called the York Rite of Freemasonry and the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, where the 25 degrees become 32, with the 33rd being honorary, and the York Rite of Freemasonry, which isn't as many degrees, um, and ends ultimately with what is called the Knights Templar. Um, the final end-all ceremony of the York Rite is the Knights Templar degree. And again, this is a reflection of you know the Roman Catholic, you know Roman Catholic element of this. The two guys who are behind um, the Knights Templar in America, um, and they use all the same symbols and all the same colors. You know, the Red Cross of Saint George, 
from, from the medieval Knights is a governor of New York named DeWitt Clinton and this other guy I mentioned earlier named Thomas Smith Webb. Um, and it's these two high-degree systems that basically become, you know, the two premier higher-degree systems in the United States. Um, the, 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 the York Rite is set up at the end of the... Um, at the at the end of the eighteen hundred at the excuse me at the um, end of the eighteenth century and the Scottish Rite isn't founded until eighteen oh one. What happens is in the United States and this is where you get this whole thing of the higher degrees controlling everything and the higher degrees you know where, where you know where you get into some of the more you know lurid conspiracy talk and I'll talk about it because it, there is some uh, there, there was some truth to this. Um, well, we don't really have much time left, so... Well, let me just wrap up with this then. Go ahead. It's basically, that, yeah, it's basically that these two higher degree systems in the United States of America, masonry, Blue Lodge Freemasonry, fails to create a United States Grand Lodge. So each state operates on its own, except in the higher degree systems. So masons, if they wanted to affect policy over state lines, they were able to do it through interaction with other higher degree masons. So you had this sort of higher degree cabal you know, of the York right of the Scottish right, working across state lines to format and formulate policy. That's where you get this whole thing of, oh, the higher degrees are controlling everything. This comes to a head in 1826 with the William Morgan affair, where this guy in, in New York threatens to expose all this. In a sense, the Freemasons wind up killing this guy. Freemasonry <laughs> nearly, you know, goes out of business, and it's damaged forever, and basically, you know, Freemasonry turns into a charitable philanthropic organization and you know you know the concept of masons working across state lines to formulate policy kind of ends but the conspiracy continues on even to this day well as i was telling jake earlier what's the point of having a secret society if you can't keep a few good secrets exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah you know that's absolutely right i'm not allowed to talk about i mean i could talk about the history and stuff but on, on any of these shows that i go on i don't ever mention any of the passwords or the past grips or the handshakes or any of that Although I don't have to tell you guys, you know, I mean, in this day and age of the Internet, I'm sure that's all available on a YouTube video, uh, a click away, as it were. Oh, yeah, we could we could hack that in a minute or two. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Maybe James could. I don't know if I could, but. Well, Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Why don't you tell us where we can find your book and uh, your website and your Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you. Um, thank you for that. It's, um, my, my website is www.robertwsullivan.com. IV and that's the letter IV.com because my name's the fourth Robert W. Sullivan the fourth. Um, again, www.robertwsullivaniv.com. There's links there to buy the book. There's links there to my Twitter feed, to the Facebook like pages for the book and my upcoming books. Um, if you want to buy the book directly from my publisher, that's rsplaunchpad.com. Um, and um, yeah, you know, anything, you know, and, and there's links all over. There's, a, you know, links to my YouTube channel, which is YouTube forward slash Robert W. Sullivan IV. You can listen to other radio podcasts, some interviews I've done about the Royal Arch book, um, some interviews I've done for previewing my next book, which should be on the next month or two, called Cinema Symbolism, where we deal with Masonic and Kabbalistic and occult imagery in popular movies. Oh, so, yeah, Robert W. Awesome. Sullivan IV.com, and there's links from there. Yeah, well, we're going to have to discuss that when that comes out. That'll be great. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Absolutely. Look forward to coming back on. No problem. So. Well, thanks so much uh, for joining us, Robert. Stay on the line with us until we uh, finish the program today. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake Heddle, and of course with me, as always, is founder of DoseNation.com, author of Psychedelic Information Theory and co-host of the podcast, James Kent. James, thanks for being here, as always. Oh, yeah, interesting show. I love talking about this stuff. We couldn't do it without you, literally. Uh, <laughs> Um, but uh, anyway, if you want to special uh, thanks to uh, Nick. Yeah, special thanks editor. to Nick. Yeah, for for editing all of our episodes, I like to give him a shout out because uh, he really does a he he does a good job and uh, he 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 puts in time for us and he helps us out a lot. So thank you to Nick, our editor, for uh, editing all of the shows so far, uh, at least the past two episodes and uh, this one too. So, and also, if you want to uh, help support Dose Nation, you can do that through the Amazon click-through on our website. You can buy your books on Amazon through our website at www.dosenation.com. If you want to follow us on uh, Twitter, you can, you can do so at www.twitter.com forward slash Dose Nation. Follow us on Facebook, Facebook, or like us on Facebook, sorry, facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. We have a SoundCloud, which a few things get uploaded to here and there, and a YouTube account. Uh, the SoundCloud is soundcloud.com forward slash Dose Nation. 
uh, and the the YouTube one or the YouTube one's a little different. It's Dose Nation Video. So if it's YouTube.com forward slash Dose Nation Video, and uh, make a donation, uh, James. I know that uh, you keep up on that. So, uh, you know, we yeah, there's a PayPal button. Yeah, on the website you can hit make a donation. Always helpful. Yeah, and we appreciate it. It uh, helps us out and uh, keeps us going. So it uh, it's you know allows us get things like equipment and you know things like that so they're always appreciated we, we we and we thank each and every one of you who decides to donate so but uh, and like i said you can help in other ways with the amazon stuff and just by liking and commenting and sharing and putting the podcast out there and the the information out there to other people so well thanks everybody for joining us uh, and uh, we'll see you next time I hope everybody has a uh, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. 